Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession text is 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. This counsel of the Apostle John is clear and just as important today as when he first penned these words. We are all lovers. We love. It's what we human beings do every moment of every day, in every location, in every situation. We are, not, we are never not loving. It's in the very fiber of our being. It's the way God carefully constructed us. Why did he hardwire us to love? Why is it such an essential part of who we are? God created us with this capacity for love so that we would have what we need to live in a deeply loving, heart-controlling, motivation-producing, worship-initiating, joy-stimulating relationship with Him. Our capacity to love was created for Him. Our desire to love was meant to draw us to Him. Our heart was designed to long for love, and that longing was meant to find its final and complete fulfillment in Him. Here is the tragedy. Sin causes us all in some way to turn our backs on the love of God and give the principal love of our hearts to someone or something else. We seek to have our hearts fulfilled by love for something other than God. We love the creation more than the Creator. We love other people more than we love God. We love ourselves so much that we have little energy to love the one who is love. We run from thing to thing, hoping our hearts will be content in love. You could say we are spiritually promiscuous, lacking loyalty in our hearts toward God. We are spiritual adulterers, giving away the love which God designed to belong to Him only. In response to this reality, we can only exclaim as Paul did, Oh, what wretched man I am. If this is our reality, wayward, misplaced, adulterous love, is the love of the Father really in us? John wrote, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But let us not forget that we have been rescued from our miserable state. Jesus has overcome the world. It does not hold its sway with us for long. The love of the Father is indeed in us. This is why we confess our sins to him. We are compelled by our love to God to confess that we have not loved him with all our being. Out of love of the Father, we put our trust in the sacrifice of his beloved Son, which he has provided. Let us then go to him to confess our sins. You're willing and able, please do it with me as we confess this. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning I'm going to be preaching out of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33 on marriage. I've been working through Ephesians back home at Trinity. It's been an incredible blessing for our congregation, uh, as well as for me, because I am in Ephesians every day, all week, 
as I prepare, and it has been a sanctifying experience as the Word of God has been applied to my own heart. So this morning, we're going to consider the mystery of marriage and what it, why it is a mystery, why Paul says that, and how that relates to the nature of marriage and also to the, the ministry of the gospel. There's a connection there between the gospel and marriage, and it's something that we must not miss. That's what makes it profound in the first place. But before I read the words of the Spirit through Paul to us, let's pray. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you hungry for truth, hungry for your word. Lord, like your disciples said, who else will we go to? You have the words of life. That is true of you, Lord. So we've come to hear from your word. Lord, please help me to deliver your word faithfully, though I'm a weak and sinful man. I pray that, that my weaknesses will not get in the way of the proclamation of your word and the work of your spirit. Father, I pray that you give all of us ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to your word so that it will not merely be deflected off of us, but that we will eat it with all of our hearts, that we will believe what you say to us, and that we will obey what you tell us to do, Lord. Help us, Father. We know that apart from the work of your Spirit, we cannot believe your word or understand it. It is foolishness to us. Don't let it be foolishness to us, Lord. Send us your Spirit. Give us understanding, we pray. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Saints, listen to what our Lord's servant Paul says about the mystery of marriage in Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What a character Paul was. What a, why do I say Paul's a character? Well, listen, he says this is a, this is a profound mystery, and I, I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church, and then he just moves on, right? And he reiterates what he had just taught on in the previous verses about the duty of husbands and the duty of wives within marriage, which we're also going to touch upon this morning. That's crucial to understanding the nature of marriage, of course. But Paul doesn't take any time to really unpack what he was getting at when he said, this is a profound mystery. He's throwing us a tidbit, and then it's moving on. And that's why I say Paul's a character. He's saying, there's a lot to unpack here. Get to it. Get to it. Understand this. Understand what I'm saying, all right? Do good work. So that's what I'm going to attempt to do this morning in the time that I have, is to try to understand the nature of marriage, why it's a mystery, not a mystery any longer at this point, and how it relates to the ministry of the gospel. And that's something I really want to make clear for all of us this morning, is that our marriages are indelibly connected to the ministry of the gospel in the world. One of the ways in which God makes the gospel go forth into the world so that the nations are made into disciples and so that the lost come to faith in Christ is through the marriages of his people. It's through godly marriages within his church. And I want to emphasize something right off the bat. When I say godly marriages, I am not talking about perfect, sinless marriages. Because there is no such thing when you have two sinners saying, I do. There's even a book that some pastor wrote a few years ago called When Sinners Say I Do. And that's exactly what happens when two Christians are married. Two sinners are getting married. 
So when I say a godly marriage, I don't mean a perfect marriage. I don't mean a marriage that has no problems. I don't mean a marriage that is free from weakness and sin and hurt. All marriages have those things. It's a matter of honoring the Lord in spite of our sin and learning to overcome our sin in our marriages so that he might be honored in us. I had a Greek professor in, in college as an undergraduate. The only man I've ever known, he was a godly man. He loved the Lord dearly, very warm man. Dr. Morris was his name. I may, I've just told, named him, so that might not be good. But his name was Dr. Morris. And he told our entire Greek class that he and his wife never had an argument. Ever. I don't know if I believe him. <laughs> if so, he's the only man I've ever met who has never had an argument with his wife. Good for him. He's a better man than me. But when Paul says that this is a profound mystery, he's, he's telling us this is what we need to emulate in our marriages, in our own marriages. This is what we need to be pursuing and reflecting. And it's hard work because we have to fight against our sin to do it. But it is glorious and good work. Now, Paul is tying a lot together here. He's reaching all the way back to Genesis 2, 24, where God first ordained marriage prior to the fall. Marriage is not a condition of the fall. It was ordained by God, established by him prior to the fall. So it's not the result of sin. Marriage is a good thing. It's not a necessary evil. It's God has called marriage very good. So Paul's reaching way back to that creation ordinance. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And that's Genesis 2.24. And then he, go, he jumps from Genesis and creation to Christ. And he brings it all together. And he says what God established in Genesis 2.24, that's actually referring to Jesus in the church. So back there we're seeing... The gospel in early form, a shadow of the gospel that has now been brought to light since Christ has come. And he says that this is a profound mystery. So the question I want to begin with this morning is, is concerning what Paul means when he calls the connection between marriage and Christ's relationship with the church a mystery. What is he talking about? Is he saying that we can't really understand what marriage is supposed to be about, what it's supposed to reflect? No, that's not what he's saying. He is not saying that marriage is mysterious in the sense that it is incomprehensible. It may feel that way sometimes, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He is not saying marriage is incomprehensible. Who can understand it? Now, the Rome, the Church of Rome, when they look at this, many of their theologians, when they look at this passage, have concluded that marriage is, as a mystery is therefore a sacrament of the church. Now, we're Reformed Protestants, so we believe, rightly, that there are only two sacraments that God has given his church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, of course. Well, we know the Church of Rome has seven sacraments, and marriage is one of them. And the reason why the Church of Rome has historically referred to marriage as a sacrament is actually because of a particular Bible translation. Some of you will know what it is. What's the authoritative translation, or what was the authoritative translation for the Church of Rome for, for centuries? The Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate. Now, here's the thing. In Greek, the word that Paul is using for mystery is mysterion in Greek. Guess what that is in Latin? 
in the Vulgate. How is mysterion translated into Latin? Sacramentum. Sacramentum. So you can see how early Roman Catholic theologians would look at that passage where Paul says in the Latin translation, marriage is a sacramentum and therefore conclude that marriage is therefore a sacrament. Well, that's not the case and that's just bad hermeneutics in the end, isn't it? We're not basing that on the original language. We're basing that on a translation out of the Latin. That's not Paul's point. He's not saying marriage is a sacrament. He's saying that marriage is a mystery. Now, to be fair, the best Roman Catholic theologians today don't appeal to this passage to justify their view of marriage as a sacrament. I want to be fair in that. But historically, this has been one of the passages that they turn to to say, you know, marriage, marriage is a sacrament. And we would say it's certainly an ordinance of God established by creation, but it's not a sacrament of the church. Let's consider, if we want to understand, though, if we're, going to, if we're going to conclude, okay, marriage is not a sacrament, but it is a mystery, one of the ways that we should begin to answer that question is by considering whether or not Paul has used this concept of mystery elsewhere. And perhaps, in looking at the other ways in which Paul has used the word mystery, we will be able to just determine what he is getting at here in, this ver- in these verses. And as it happens, Paul does use the concept of mystery earlier in the book of Ephesians, specifically in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 2 through 3, where he refers to the mystery of the Gentiles. Many of us are familiar with that passage. He talks of the mystery of the Gentiles. Now, what was the mystery of the Gentiles? Well, the mystery of the Gentiles was that God would include them in his kingdom through Christ. That was something that had not been absolutely clear in the old co- under the Old Covenant. It was foreshadowed. We see that in Genesis 12, where God promises Abraham, all nations, all families of the earth shall be blessed through you. So there's, there's a foreshadowing. But it wasn't until the coming of Christ, until Pentecost, and until the, the sending of the apostles, that it became very clear that the mystery of the Gentiles was revealed, and we see that happening in the book of Acts, that the Gentiles are going to be included in the kingdom, are included in the kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the way that Paul uses mystery elsewhere in Ephesians is to to, uh, discuss something being uncovered, something that was formerly darkened being brought to light, so that it's clearly understood. That's how he used it in reference to the Gentiles. And I think that's how he is using it also in reference to marriage in this passage. He's referring to something that was only darkly understood, only partially understood under the old covenant. And now that Christ has come and has been brought into the light, we fully understand this mystery now. It is no longer a mystery. We now see it for what it is. We understand the symbolism And this is an amazing thing, because what it tells us, saints, is that from the beginning, God intended merit for marriage to symbolize Christ and the church. That was the design for marriage. That was God's purpose for marriage from the time of creation. And now that our Lord Jesus has come and died for us and risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, now that all of us Gentiles 
have been included in the kingdom, we see that. We see the connection between Jesus and the church and marriage. And what does marriage give us then? What is Paul's point here? Well, the point he is making is this, that marriage gives us the clearest picture of gospel truth. Do you, not, do you want to understand the gospel? Do you want a picture of what the gospel is all about? Look at marriage. And Paul just got through making that argument earlier in chapter 5. What does he say to husbands? Husbands, you should all know this. Right? What does he say to you? What does he say to me? What are, who are we to emulate in our love for our wives? The Lord Jesus Christ. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church. You feel that, men? You feel that? That glorious thing that Paul has just said to us? Love your wife as Christ loved the church? Brothers, how did our Lord love his church? Well, he, Paul tells us, by dying for him by laying his life down for her, by putting her needs before his own, by humbling himself, making himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to the point of death in order to redeem her. That is how we are to love our wives. And now we're all thinking, Nate, you know who I am? Yes, I do, and I know who I am as well, brother. And the answer is a sinner. And the answer is a selfish man who is saved by grace, who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and because of that, is able to do it. Not by my own strength, but by the power of Christ within me. Brothers, we can actually do what Paul tells us to do. We can actually love our wives like Christ loved the church. It will never be perfect this side of eternity. But we can strive for that. We must never allow ourselves the excuse, brother, brothers, of saying to ourselves, I cannot do this. It's just not who I am. I'm just too selfish. How many times have I heard husbands say to me, I'm just, I can't change. Wrong. It's called repentance. And it comes with the territory when you're a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us, as all the husbands, to recognize this. We are capable of obeying Paul's command to us in Ephesians 5. It is not too high. It is not too far off. It is not too above us. By the grace of God and the power of his spirit through the blood of Christ, I want to emphasize it is by the power of God made perfect in our weakness that we are able to love our wives like that. For the glory of God. And when we do, brothers, it changes the world. It changes the world. It shows the world the gospel when we love our wives like that. It shows our children the gospel. It shows our church the gospel. It shows our community the gospel. To see a man laying his life down for his wife broadcast the gospel is saturated with the love of Christ. This is Paul's point. Marriage reflects Christ in the church through husbands giving themselves for one woman, just like Jesus gave himself for one bride. That was a dramatic change in the course of world history. 
One of the most common questions pastors are faced with by, by parishioners, especially by young parishioners, is, Pastor, why did David have so many wives? Why did all the Old Testament kings, why didn't God tell them to stop having so many wives and to only have one like we do in the New Testament? Well, the answer was because Jesus had not yet come. That's why. But now that Jesus has come, we see clearly, we understand marriage far better than David understood marriage. And that means we are far more privileged than even David was because we see more clearly than he did. But this was a dramatic change, the notion that a man would only take one wife to himself and be monogamous in his faithfulness to her was revolutionary. Because even in Rome, where you had monogamy, it was often expected that husbands would be unfaithful to their wives and have mistresses on the side. It was just accepted, and sadly it's become much that way in our own society today, which is why we need sermons like this one. It was revolutionary because mankind in his depravity does not gravitate toward faithful Christian monogamous marriage. Mankind in his depravity gravitates towards being an alley cat in his sin. Doesn't he? Right, men? Isn't that what we are in our flesh? There's a lot of alley cats? Yes, that's right. That's what we are apart from the Spirit. And it's only by the grace of God revealed through Christ that we are made into faithful, godly men who love one woman above all others to the exclusion of all others. When you married your wife, gentlemen, you were consecrating her. You were setting her apart. You were saying, you and no others, you exclusively, you alone, I claim you and give myself to you completely, withholding nothing. And I will give my heart to no other. I'll give my eyes, my body to no other. I am yours and you are mine. You consecrated her and she consecrated you unto herself. We see this dramatic change established, especially in the qualifications for elders. Paul makes it a point. If you're going to be a pastor of Christ's sheep, if you're going to represent Christ in a very limited sense to his sheep, then you have to be like him. And that means you have to be the man of one wife. The man of one wife who is faithful to her. And whose marriage is known to be characterized not by perfection, but by faithfulness. And you know what happens, saints? What happens when the church is encouraging, promoting, shepherding her her sheep in such a way that her marriages are becoming ever more and increasingly faithful, that ends up being salt and light to the surrounding society. And you end up with a Christian society where monogamy is the rule. And what happens when monogamy, Christian monogamy, becomes the standard for a society? Well, the result is blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And this is where I want you to see the connection between marriage and the gospel ministry. Because as we preach the gospel, what do you think happens to those cultures where the gospel goes in and begins to work effectually? Their view of marriage is transformed. You begin to see faithful husbands and faithful wives in godly marriages. And what happens as these godly marriages are established, the society begins to be transformed from the inside out because marriage is the very foundation of human society. We need to realize that. When you look at a society and you see its flaw, you see what's good about it and what's bad about it, you are seeing a collective reflection of the marriages of which that society consists. So when you look at our society... 
What does that say about most of the marriages within our society? Are they good? What does it say about most of the men and wives in our society? It means they've lost sight of the gospel. It means they've lost sight of a biblical Christian view of marriage. But when, this, when the biblical teaching, the Christian teaching on marriage is established in society, men are able to marry and have families. So you don't have men competing with one another and killing one another in order to have a wife or to have women. Women are protected as wives and daughters. They're not treated as chattel or as property. Children are born into families that care for them. They're seen as being a heritage from the Lord that arise from the godly union between a man and a woman. And having that kind of society requires that marriage be held in honor by all. Not, by ju- not just by married people, but by all people, single and married alike, young and old alike. We see this in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 4, where the Spirit says to us, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, when when the Spirit says, let marriage be held in honor among all, he means, as I said earlier, for married and single alike. Now, how does a single person hold marriage in honor? By not engaging in sexual immorality is how. By recognizing what the marriage bed is for. And the limits and the constraints that the marriage bed puts upon our desires and submitting to the word of God and those in the way that we gratify our desires. Recognizing that if I want to be with a woman or if I want to, if I'm a, if I'm a woman and I want to be with a man, then the only God-given way for that to happen is through marriage. And when that is lost within a society, saints, when marriage is no longer held in honor by all, what you see happening is sexual immorality begins to creep in and begins to pervade that society and it begins to erode away at that mor- the moral foundation. It begins to pull that society away from Christ and away from the church, away from the gospel until you end up with something like we see every day when we go outside of these doors. That's why we must not allow ourselves to think for one moment that it's ever permissible for us to not honor marriage in our own lives, whether we're married or single. We have to honor marriage. And we honor marriage by keeping ourselves sexually pure and fleeing from sexual immorality. Husbands and wives, obviously, what, is, what does this mean for you? It means remaining faithful to each other and keeping yourself away from unfaithfulness and from adultery. And remaining faithful to your spouse. And this is a temptation for husbands and wives alike. A great temptation. I talked about that much more in my sermons on Paul's instructions to wives and then his instructions to husbands. But it's something we have to acknowledge and it's something we have to guard our hearts against. We must not allow ourselves to think that we're above or immune to such temptation. The temptation of adultery. We are not. We are prone to it because we're fallen. And we must work hard to remain faithful to our spouses so that God would be honored in us. Here's the heart of the matter that I'm coming to right now. We see the heart of the matter, I believe, when it comes to how marriage reflects Christ in the church. In Matthew 19, verses 1 through 10. 
And we know what's going on there in Matthew 19, don't we? They're asking him that question about divorce. Because divorce, in their day, under the old covenant, because of Israel's hardness of heart, divorce was easy. How did a guy divorce his wife in those days? What did he have to do? Give her a certificate of divorce. It was like today. No-fault divorce, right? Here's, I'm done with you. I don't like your rolls anymore and your soup wasn't salty enough. So that's it. I'm done. Say, sayonara. We laugh, but it was that easy. Like it is today for the most part. If you want a divorce. That's why they couldn't wrap their heads around what Jesus was saying to them. No, the only reason, why, the only reason you can divorce is for sexual immorality, covenant, covenantal unfaithfulness. That's the only justification for divorce. Outside of that, you remain faithful to one another. Why? Well, why do you think? How, what is Jesus like with his church saints? Would Jesus ever give his beloved bride a certificate of divorce? Never. That's why he came and shed his blood for her, for us. And that gives us an idea of the kind of love and commitment and loyalty that it needs to, that must characterize our marriages. A dedication to working through our difficulties, our hardships, the way we sin against one another, the way we hurt one another. We're going to work through it all by the grace of God and remain faithful to each other. Why? Because that's what gives the world an accurate reflection of Christ's love for the church. Remember what I said at the outset. That having a godly marriage does not mean having a perfect marriage. Not by any stretch. Having a godly marriage means having a marriage you refuse to give up on. It means, refu it means refusing to stop loving your wife or to stop loving your husband. But to do whatever it takes, that, as far as you can do it in honoring God, to ensure that your marriage remains intact and that you are striving to honor God in your marriage. That is, gives the world an example of Christ's love for his church. Not having a perfect marriage, having a marriage that is characterized by an undying, unending love for one another. And husbands, that has to begin with us. That has to begin with us. We have to lead our wives in that kind of love. Letting her know, I am not going to be giving up on you. I am not going to keep a record of wrongs. I am not going to get angry at you. I am going to be patient. I'm going to live with you in understanding. And when you sin against me, I'm going to be quick to forgive. And I'm not going to write you off and be short and distant and aloof, but kind, attentive, and engaging, no matter what our history is. This is not easy to do. It's not. Especially if you've been married for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I've worked with couples in the past who have, they have quite a track record of difficulty behind them. They've hurt one another a lot in the past. And in order for them to get past that, they have to demonstrate immense amount of grace to one another. But you know what? That's what glorifies God. That's what shows the world what Christ's love for his bride is like. And you know, the disciples... They didn't understand it either. When Jesus said the only way, a God, the only way, a, the only lawful way in which a man may divorce his wife is for 
covenant unfaithfulness for sexual immorality, porneia, they said, well, it's better not to marry in that case. That's what they said. What's better for a man not to marry? And you're thinking, well, I feel sorry for their wives. <laughs> right? We know Peter was married. I'm thinking, poor, poor Mrs. Peter. My goodness, that was their view. And you know they came around, right? They had to have come around eventually. But, man, they were, they were a product of their culture. And when they heard what Jesus said, when they heard what marriage really required, the kind of commitment it required, they thought, well, it's better just not to do it. Then. Oh, you guys. We can't, that cannot be our attitude. But you know that I'm seeing that attitude creep into our, not creep into our society, it's marching into our society. You know how many unmarried young people there are in our world today? Some of them, it's no fault of their own. They desire to be married. We just had uh, one young lady at Trinity who was married last fall. She had waited eight years before the right guy came along. Eight years. Is that because there are just no eligible Christian young men in the world? No, it's because there are no eligible Christian young men who are doing the hard work of going out and finding a wife. Because you know what? It's hard to find a wife. It's not easy. I just had a young man who actually approached a young lady about courting her. It went well, thanks be to God, because this young guy really needs to be married. I told him he earned his beard that day. He had a beard. He hadn't earned it up to that point. But when he finally talked to her, he said, you earned your beard, buddy. You earned it. But you find young men who aren't willing to take that step of finding a wife because they're afraid. It, I think it's more difficult to approach a young lady to court her than it is to ask for her hand in marriage. Because let's be honest, by the time you're bringing that ring to her, you already know what she's going to say. No guy does that not knowing. Right? No guy that I know anyway goes into that going, I'm not quite sure where she's at, but I'm going to see. You know. You're not going to spend a couple grand or whatever. I didn't spend that much, but anyway. Whatever you're able. You're not going to spend whatever you spent and not know. So that first question, that first time you say, yeah, are you interested? Can I talk to your dad? That's the hardest step. And we got to encourage our young, men to, our young men to take that step. Why? Because the church needs godly marriages. We need them desperately. Because that's what shows the world the gospel. That's what displays the gospel before the church, before our children, and before our society as a whole. So, I'm, I'm wrapping things up here. <clears throat> this passage in my mind, answers a pressing question for us. What is that pressing question? Well, here it is. What can I do to impact the world for the gospel? Right? We're, we often ask ourselves that question. What can I do to make a difference? What can I do to disciple the nation? To change the culture and the direction of our culture? Should I go out and do street preaching? Maybe. Should I do missions work? Perhaps. Should I become an elder or a deacon? If the Lord wills it. But here's one thing you absolutely can do to change the world for the sake of Christ. Honor God in your marriages. It really is that simple. Doing it is not simple. It's hard work. It's glorious work. But you're already equipped to do it if you're married. You're already equipped to do that nation-discipling, world-changing work through loving your wife or through loving your husband. And that will change the world. Husbands, if you want to be engaged in gospel ministry, then love your wives. That's what Paul concludes with, isn't it? Right here. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Do that, brothers. Encourage one another to do that. That will change the world. That will evangelize our society and our culture if you love your wife as yourself. There is more to it than that, but it starts there. It starts there. Wives, do you want to change the world for Jesus? Are you fed up with the darkness pervading our culture? Do you want to fight against it? Do you want to see Christ victorious in our society? If so, then listen to what Paul says to you here at the end of verse 33. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Dear sisters, do that. Start there. And through you and your husband, through him loving you, as he loves himself, and through you respecting his authority as your head, that will become the launching pad for gospel ministry in our society. That will make a difference in our culture, in our nation. That will make disciples of our nation. If we do this, saints, hopefully it's not a question of if, but as we do this, we will bring glory to God and we will adorn the church with beauty. We will adorn the church with holiness as we honor, her, honor Christ in our marriages. And our witness in the world will become far more effective. Far more effective. I'll close with this, with this statement. Churches, if it's true that societies are only as strong as their marriages, as the marriages of which that society consists, then that is all the more true for churches. A church is only as strong as the marriages within it. And if a church is full of a lot of weak and struggling marriages where the husbands are refusing to love their wives and the wives are refusing to respect their husbands, then that church is ripe for the taking by the enemy, I'm sorry to say. That church will easily fall prey to the schemes of the devil because all those marriages that are weak and struggling and falling apart represent cracks in the foundation, and it's through such cracks that our enemy worms his way into congregations to destroy them through weak marriages. Nearly every case of church discipline we have had in our congregation has been due to marriages, marriages that were weak, with either the husband refusing to lead his wife or a wife refusing to follow her husband, one or the other, it usually flows right out of that. And every time, it was a direct assault upon the unity of our congregation, which is why it had to result in discipline, sadly enough. The exhortation in this is to not allow that be true of your marriage. Don't allow your marriage to be that crack in the foundation. You don't have to be perfect. You can't be perfect. But you can obey Jesus. You can love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, you can respect your husbands as Christ calls you to. You can do that by the Spirit. If you will do that, then this church will be blessed and strengthened. This church will gain traction in Howell, Michigan for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mystery of marriage. We thank you that in your great wisdom, you foreshadowed Christ and his marriage to his bride, the church, way back at creation in Genesis 2.24.
We thank you, Lord, that we are privileged enough to see that mystery unveiled through the coming of our Lord and his finished work upon the cross and his resurrection and ascension. Father, help us, help us as husbands to love our wives as our Lord Jesus has loved his church, Lord, not perfectly, but faithfully in the power of the Spirit. And please help my dear sisters who are wives to respect their husbands also by the power of your Spirit, Father, by your grace. And for those who are single, Lord, help all of us to hold the marriage bed and honor so that you might be glorified in this congregation, and not only within this congregation, but within our society. And now we ask, Lord, that you would teach us how to pray as our Lord Jesus Christ. God is love, and he created us to be in a loving relationship with him. But our sin broke that relationship. The history of mankind is a story of a love drama that seemed to be ending in tragedy. But Jesus came. God sent the son of his love to make the ultimate sacrifice of love so that we would become people who loved him as he intended us to love him, so that we could love him as we had never loved him before. In Jesus Christ, God showers us with a love that does not quit, even on our most unloving days. By grace, he transforms our hearts so that increasingly we are able to keep creation in his proper place and keep the ultimate love of our hearts for him and him alone. Here at this table, we celebrate God's gift of rescuing love. Because of Jesus, his crucified body and his shed blood, you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So come, dear saints, and partake of the gift that has restored you in God's love. Christ's body broken for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.